You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. Well, with the Labor Day holiday past us, the 2024 presidential primary season is really going to get going. So here to tell us the nine things to watch as the campaign season gets going, Maeve Reston, national political reporter for the Washington Post, who joins us really early from Los Angeles. <laughs> Maeve, welcome to your debut on First Look. Thank you for getting up so early for us. It's such a pleasure to join you. So um, the first of the nine things you mentioned is whether Donald Trump's legal woes will catch up to him. Will they? Well, so far, they really um, haven't. And I think that's the big question that we're all looking at. Obviously, um, we've seen these these spikes in his small dollar donations and also in his polling numbers each time one of these indictments has dropped. And so you also have, you know, all of his supporters and even some of the soft Trump supporters feeling like, uh, you know, that he is being politically persecuted and this is all too much. And so he's been really able to play the the victim or the martyr card this entire time. Um, and it, at the same time, you know, we are hearing some concern from Republican voters in early states who are saying, you know, is he the strongest nominee given that he's going to have to be in the courtroom for uh, much of next year? Um, and will that eventually, you know, start to drag on his electability. So we're kind of waiting to see whether that turns over the next couple of months. But I think that that's really one of the biggest questions um, that we're facing in this race. Now, on the Democratic side, you speculated about whether President Biden will face a serious primary challenge. Will he? I mean, it's getting a little bit late for that, as you know, um, with all of these ballot qualification deadlines coming up. But it's just amazing, um, as you've also seen this week, all of these polls showing um, the real weakness that Biden has, you know, majorities saying that his economic policies um, have not helped the country, uh, very low approval ratings, and also a real discontent within the Democratic Party about the fact that they believe that he will be, uh, you know, their nominee. There's there's no one else emerging on the stage thus far, um, and it would be very hard to pull that off at this point. So, uh, you know, it's just remarkable with, with so many Democratic voters telling us over and over again that they have concerns about his age, his mental acuity, um, and all of those things. And so that's going to be a real challenge for the Democrats. But what they're trying to do, as we've seen over and over again, is to juice up, you know, this energy and anger um, about the policies that the Republicans are putting forward and also, you know, the fear that Trump would once again become the Republican nominee. And just to be clear, there are people on the Democratic side who are running Marianne Williamson, Cornell West, um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. There's one other person whose name is escaping me. But let's talk about another one of your nine, nine things. You raised the possibility of a late entrant on the Republican side. What are you hearing about whether Virginia Governor um, uh, Glenn Youngkin, who can't run for a second consecutive term, is considering making a run for the nomination? 
So this has been kind of the, you know, the rumor or the rumbling that we've been hearing all year um, in because there is a good amount of discontent in the donor community with the choices that they have on the GOP side. And that's why we've seen so many of the really influential Republican donors stay on the sidelines because they just really don't think um, that any of these contenders have what it takes to take on Trump. These are sort of the the people who the donors who have either moved on from Trump or really have been anti-Trump since the beginning. And so that has always kind of piqued the interest in Glenn Youngkin, who, of course, um, had a commanding victory in Virginia, which is a purplish state. Um, so he has the same kind of credentials in that sense as Ron DeSantis does. But there's been so so much discontent among donors about DeSantis's entry into the race, you know, the the skills that he's shown on the campaign trail. And there's just a lot of skittishness now about whether all of the money that's uh, been put behind DeSantis has has really um, amounted to much. And so Youngkin has always said he won't talk about his political future until after the Virginia legislative elections coming up this November, that that is his entire focus, making sure that he gets Republicans elected so he can continue to drive his agenda in Virginia. Um, but we might see something after that. Uh, Rupert Murdoch has shown a lot of interest in Youngkin, which of course would be a big uh, player to have on your team um, cheering you on. And also a lot of donors have been, you know, urging him to jump in. At the same time, there is like a real ticking clock here because the Virginia legislative elections will actually fall after uh, the deadline for qualifying for the ballot in Nevada and South Carolina. Um, so he would potentially miss those. Um, and then uh, there's a lot of states that follow very quickly after it. And as you know, it's very hard to put an operation together quickly to qualify, to meet some of those ballot uh, qualification requirements. So that would be a huge challenge, but he does have personal resources and a lot of interest. So we'll see what happens. Another issue you raise, whether Donald Trump ever takes the debate stage uh, this primary season, does he ever have to speak to Republican voters from that stage as his opponents have to? Well, I think that, you know, what the calculation has been within the Trump campaign is is what is the point of putting him on stage? Uh, you know, he's been averaging something like, a, you know, a 40 a 40 point lead um, above his uh, potential rivals. They see it as sort of, you know, that, that he would be like stooping too low to engage with them on that stage. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've also heard that he there is some he does have some consternation about sort of the idea of not being up on the stage to defend himself and his policies if these Republicans start to ratchet up their attacks. And so it, it feels like that may be the tipping point. Um, if he sees, you know, an opening where he needs to get up there and defend himself, then we might see him. But um, otherwise, he seems to be resisting that spotlight so far. Uh, you've posted all these what ifs. But how likely is it that we'll end, uh, end up indeed having a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024? 
I mean, it seems extremely likely at this point, the fundamentals of this race, which has it's been really amazing, have not changed much since the beginning of this year, um, even despite all of, you know, Trump's legal troubles and, you know, the constant sort of crush of news. So I just don't, I don't see anything really changing those fundamentals unless, you know, huge donors get in um, and get behind one of these candidates and they find a path to really take on Donald Trump because that's been one of the remarkable things is just that a lot of the attacks on him simply don't work. And Republican voters also don't want to see their candidates um, attacking him in a harsh way. We've seen that over and over again in the polling. So they're in a real bind. And it seems unclear what the path would be for any of them out of that. Mm -hmm. And and real fast, we're running out of time. Um, You wrote that you'll be looking to see if there's an anti-Trump faction that will emerge. Uh, Any indication at all that that one will happen and two will succeed? Well, I think we don't know the answer to that question yet. We are seeing, you know, some uh, elements of that that movement kind of coming together with the win it back ads, for example, that are running in Iowa and South Carolina, um, you know, with, with former Trump supporters saying that he's disappointed them. But we haven't seen real money behind that effort yet. And that's partly because a lot of donors are pretty skeptical that it would work. And so until they're convinced otherwise, I don't know how much we'll be seeing on that front. Maeve Reston, national political reporter for The Washington Post and early bird since it is, you are coming to us from Los Angeles three hours earlier. Thank you so much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. I'm so great to join you, Jonathan. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with our opinions roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists Jennifer Rubin and Hugh Hewitt. Jen, Hugh, welcome back to First Look. Nice to be here. All right, so uh, Hugh, you heard Maeve's list of things that could shake up the race. Uh, What's on your list? Uh, Whether or not any of the Republicans not named Trump drop out, uh, whether willingly or involuntarily. Right now, the former president is uh, getting a replay of 2016, and I've seen this movie before. You can't um, displace the president from his former president from his lead unless and until you get to one or two candidates. I think maybe Vivek takes his voters away from him, but until that consolidates, he is the presumptive nominee. Jennifer, do you see a 2024 game changer on the horizon? Not on the Republican side. This is a party that has been thoroughly Trumpized. Um, the base, uh, and you can't really just separate the base from the rest of the party. This is the Republican Party, are still in Trump's gaze. Um, reality doesn't intrude the sense of peril that our democracy would face if we actually had a president who had been convicted of one or more crimes, does not phase them. There is no input um, that will change their minds. And so the only The only question in my mind is whether an actual trial, an actual conviction finally pierces this haze of self-delusion that this guy is a fit, proper candidate. And I think it's open to debate. Um, Republicans at some point um, may want to realize that even if they love this guy, even if they still worship him as some kind of messiah figure, that the rest of the country is not ready to elect someone who has been convicted of fill in the blank stealing secret documents, conspiring to overthrow the government. So 
all of us keep kind of waiting for this to happen, but it doesn't. And in large part, that's because they live in a sealed media world in which they discount everything else. Everything else becomes a conspiracy. But it will be interesting as we see Peter Navarro, for example, was convicted yesterday in October. We're going to get the trials of Kenneth Chesbrough and um, Sidney Powell. Whether any of these make a dent uh, in the Republican uh, voters' minds. And I think the press needs to do a better job of figuring out why they maintain this delusion? How is it that, in essence, tens of millions of people can get behind someone who instigated an overthrow of the government? Uh, that is that is a question. We're going to talk um, about the legal stuff in a moment. But one of the things uh, I didn't get to discuss with Maeve is no labels. And Hugh, you had former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on your show yesterday. And in that interview, you voiced support for a third party candidacy from the group No Labels because you believe it would drain votes from Democrats and help Republicans. But Chris Christie disagreed, calling it, quote, a fool's errand. Doesn't he have a point? Well, he calls it a shotgun uh, because they don't know who they'll hit and who they'll hurt. I think the odds are fairly overwhelming they'll hurt Democrats because the President Biden is infirm, and obviously so. And I don't think we are a Geico commercial where we're not going to say that. People have begun to say President Biden is infirm and Vice President Kamala Harris is unpopular. So if they run uh, President Biden, no labels will take votes away from people who are Democrats and just hate Trump, the Trump derangement syndrome people. They got to go somewhere. They don't want to vote for Trump if he's the nominee and they don't want to vote for Biden if he's infirm and they come to that conclusion out loud or in their mind. And so I think no labels does help Republicans. As a Republican, I can't imagine a single Republican who would take that top slot, who would hurt the Republican nominee. If you have one in mind, tell me, but I can't imagine one who would actually hurt the Republican nominee. Hugh, um, you'll be shocked to know that I agree with you, but Jennifer, um, is Biden, quote, infirm, a word that you used not. about a couple of times? Two to four times in that answer. And it's silly that someone from the Washington Post should make that statement. There is zero evidence that he is. This infirm guy took the Republicans' lunch in the uh, negotiation over the uh, debt ceiling. This guy who was supposedly infirm spent 40 hours traveling to a war zone in Ukraine. This guy who is supposedly infirm has passed more bipartisan legislation than any president in our lifetime. This guy who is supposedly supposedly infirm, has created or helped create um, over 13 million jobs, reduced the unemployment rate to less than 4%. So I think this is the kind of propaganda that right-wing Republicans get. And because of that, and because of these constant um, kind of uh, whisper campaigns and bullhorn campaigns, um, they have uh, become convinced of something that simply isn't true. I would commend all our viewers and readers to the wonderful column from our colleague Dana Milbank today, who goes through the litany of horrors that the Republicans say about Joe Biden. He is a dog petter. He is an ice cream eater. And this is the kind of hysterical uh, criticism that they get. And as for Trump derangement syndrome, those of us who are concerned about a neo-fascist returning to the White House, uh, I'll take the, the label of uh, friend, uh, Trump derangement syndrome. Let's call it pro-democracy derangement. Hugh, let me get your, your view on um, a speech that was given in New Hampshire on Wednesday by former Vice President Mike Pence, where he warned about the Trump brand of populism. Listen. 
Should the new populism of the right seize and guide our party, the Republican Party we've long known will cease to exist. Um, he also says, um, the last part of that sentence is, and the fate of American freedom would be in doubt. So Hugh, given Trump's strength among Republican primary electorate, um, one, does anyone care? And two, um, the guy has 2% support in the latest Wall Street Journal poll. So is he, is he talking to anybody? Does this message even resonate with anybody in the Republican primary electorate? I've had a busy week, Jonathan. I interviewed Vice President, former Vice President Pence yesterday, former Governor Christie yesterday, former President Trump Tuesday, and Governor President Youngkin last week. So I talked to these people, and there is a concern that the debt is not being addressed, that the cut in defense, the real cut in defense spending is not being con uh, contained, that the appeasement of China that we see with four visits to China by ranking cabinet members is not being contained. And Mike Pence is a Reagan conservative, as I am. I worked in the Reagan White House. I worked in the Reagan Department of Justice. And there is concern that those traditional issues, peace through stank, concern about the debt, lower taxes, are being eclipsed by, for example, anti-masking backlash fervor, concern over the growth of the administrative state. These are populist issues. They recur in American politics. They do not necessarily win majorities. Uh, the Supreme Court won the presidency for Donald Trump when he promised to nominate from that list that he put out. And the courts remain of great concern to constitutionalists. I talked about that with Mike Pence. I don't think he was attacking Donald Trump. I think he was attacking more Vivek Ramaswamy than Donald Trump. Does Mike Pence have traction? I don't know. The third debate will have the higher hurdles to cross before people enter onto that stage. I don't know that the former vice president can cross that hurdle yet. Jennifer, what did you make of former Vice President Mike Pence's remarks, especially, and I just want to point out for folks who might not know or have forgotten, you were a member of the Republican Party. You left the Republican Party. So let's just, yes. let's just be clear. Yes, I remember actually meeting with Mike Pence in his office when he was considering running against Donald Trump because he was so horrified by Donald Trump. I think he was right then. He should have followed his gut instincts. You know, it's so peculiar um, that Republicans should complain about the debt and the deficit. It expanded hugely under Donald Trump. So who are the, these conservatives? What faction of the Republican Party is for lower deficits? Um, they certainly haven't contributed to them. And with regard to foreign policy, again, I'm not sure what audience he is speaking to. Donald Trump has done more to domesticize, if you will, to suck up to Putin than any other president we've ever had. This is a president who um, had a love affair with a North Korean dictator. So if he is criticizing a movement or a segment within the Republican Party, that segment must include Donald Trump. And then what does that say about the party as a whole? This party is no longer a party of strong national security. It's no longer a party of fiscal responsibility. So I think he is talking to an audience that does not exist any longer. And I think um, it's a bit hypocritical, frankly, since his own administration obviously presided over these huge, huge deficits. Um, Hugh, as you said earlier, you've been very busy this week. You've talked to basically everybody who's, run, who's running for president on the Republican side this week. And I want to point to, I'm going to bring up your interview with Donald Trump that you had. And you asked him about um, the classified documents trial. Um, just look, let's have a listen to this. I'm going to ask you two questions on the other side. I, I think that... 
Okay, if you do, and they ask you on, on the stand, did you order anyone to move boxes? How will you answer? I'm not answering that question for you, but I'm totally covered under the law. Okay. If you read the Presidential Records Act, just read it. You take a look at it. I'm totally covered under the law. Okay, Hugh, um, you, you both are attorneys, um, but you, Hugh, you're an attorney. And my two questions are, should Donald Trump take the stand? Do you believe him when he says he'll take the stand? And two, is he on firm legal ground with that rationale? Just read the Presidential Records Act. I'm totally, quote, I'm totally covered under the law. Well, I'll answer that, but I want to give a little context, Jonathan. I spoke to the president for an hour. The 12,000-word transcript, those are 75 words. I'd encourage people to read the whole transcript. On the legal ground question, the second one, I don't know. It's a constitutional issue that will have to go up to the height. Number on the first question, is he covered by the Presidential Record Act? He most certainly is, but does that defeat? And as I told him in the interview, your greatest legal peril is the obstruction charge, which is why I asked him if he directed anyone, and he wisely chose not to answer that because I don't know his legal strategy. And the one thing I've learned in 40 years of practice before the circuit courts and the district courts and in the Department of Justice and the White House Counsel's Office with all the clearances that you could ever have in the government is until you see the defense, you don't know what the defense is. So I don't know if it's gonna prevail. I do know there are some very interesting constitutional issues. Bob McDonnell, was overcharged by Jack Smith once before and Jack Smith lost unanimously at Supreme Court. We have to wait and see. Um, Jennifer, you are an attorney. I am not. I have read the Presidential Records Act. And I mean, it seems pretty clear to me that they, it says, you don't own these documents. The United States government owns the, owns the documents. Therefore, if you have them in your possession, you don't have them legally and you must give them back. That is correct, but he's not charged with a violation of the Records Act. He's charged with a violation of the Espionage Act. He took documents that were of highly classified nature that were could be potentially damaging to the United States, which he had no right to take. And that is uh, open and shut. The reason why we haven't heard his defense is because there is no defense to that. There is no constitutional right for a former president to have documents that are um, essential to the protection of national security. So it's kind of a, a bizarre statement by his um, by him that he is protected somehow by this um, Presidential Records Act. Um, as far as will it work, um, I have yet to hear anything from his attorneys that smacks of a defense. There's no constitutional defense to obstruction of justice. There's no constitutional defense to, as we said, uh, take a former president taking uh, classified material. And as for Bob McDonald, this has nothing, nothing to do with that. Bob McDonald was convicted um, and then it was overturned because there was a question as to what the presidential act was that he was trading in exchange for favors. That has zero to do with this. Donald Trump is not going to be able to invoke Bob McDonald to keep himself out of jail. Um, if, if my peripheral vision was right, Hugh, when I was talking about the Presidential Records Act, your head was either moving like this, probably not like this, but I want to give you a chance to, well, wait, to both, respond. Wait. I'm pretty experienced with the, with the PMA because I ran the Nixon Foundation and had a few arguments with David Ferriero, the then National Archivist, and his deputy, Jay Bosanko. And they're good people. They, they do make mistakes, and they admitted to some mistakes. And the Presidential Records Management Act is a complicated, very dense 
bit of work. And every former president, except President Obama, didn't take anything with him to his library, runs into questions. They have never before been reckoned, they've never been attempted to be resolved via uh, a raid on the president's home. And so I think the constitutional issue I'm raising has more to do with the D.C. Circuit than the Presidential Records Act. And I do believe that the McDonnell uh, acquittal by the Supreme Court matters. Even Chris Christie yesterday in my interview, Chris Christie is no fan of Donald Trump's. I'm sure if you read the transcript of that, he said he would not have picked Jack Smith, given Jack Smith's record of overcharging and unusual charging. It could have been a good special counsel, but all of it, all of it, we don't know. And I used to say during the Mueller investigation, I don't know what Mueller's going to come up with. In the end, he came up with a two-volume report and there were no charges against Donald Trump. We have to wait and see. The system of law, the rule of law, counsels of lawyers like me, do not judge what you have not seen, do not estimate the validity of a defense that has not yet been mounted. Uh, but what about Jennifer's point about, you know, this case actually isn't about the Presidential Records Act. It's about the Espionage Act. Is that well, that's what you're the most interesting at? constitutional issue. And I'll let, I'm sure Jennifer will disagree with this. The president, you know, his critics say he's using the mind meld defense that he declassified them in his mind. I don't know that the Presidential Records Act, not the president, I don't know that his commander in chief power doesn't give him that authority. It is a question of first impression. I do not believe... He has to communicate in writing. The regulations do not apply to the commander in chief. These are all questions of first impression. That's why I hesitate to answer with any certainty one way or the other. Jennifer, though, if if um, a, a, a classified document that is, um, say, about nuclear secrets um, is not in where it's supposed to be, but in the private residence of anybody, um, isn't that, I mean, that person's in trouble. Yes. Yes, that person is in trouble. And it's interesting, this mind meld defense, um, his lawyers have never deigned to raise it because it's a nonsensical defense. No one has ever heard of it, and it's not going to get him out of any trouble. Um, even in front of a very friendly judge, Judge Cannon, uh, his lawyers wouldn't actually make the accusation. Um, so he does not have a defense, and there is no constitutional right to retain top secret documents that are, um, frankly, of uh, the most closely held that we have. And frankly, under the Espionage Act, it doesn't matter whether they were classified or not. Um, this is simply whether they, the disclosure of which could be damaging to the national security of the United States. So whether in his mind he declassified it or not, it really does not matter. So I think these kinds of arguments are the reason why Republicans have not grasped um, the seriousness the notion that this is somehow some bureaucratic spat with the um, National Archives is nonsensical. This is about taking the most closely held national security documents when you shouldn't have them. Um, and this is of really deep concern. And we haven't really talked at length about the obstruction issue, which is, um, I think, simply glaring and fits, frankly, a pattern that Mueller did uh, find. He didn't think he had the right to indict, but he found um, 11 categories of obstruction of justice. And I think um, that um, is frankly, very indicative of someone who has no respect for the rule of law. Um, you talked, you both talked about mind meld defense. I just came up with a nice alliteration here. Jedi jurisprudence. Uh, I'm going to start using that from now on. Jennifer Rubin, Hugh Hewitt, as always, thank you very much for coming to First thank Look. You, Have a good thank weekend. You.
Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.